Well, welcome, friends, to Emmaus Church Community. I'm so, it's so good to see you guys, several of you in here that I haven't seen for a long time. Welcome um, to those who gathered with us today. My name is Nathan. Welcome online. If you're joining us uh, today from your home, we're glad that you're here. Today we wrap up a short series called Three Feasts, which has focused on the theme of presence. The theme of presence. We're talking about the agony of absence <clears throat> and the power of presence. And today I want to look at how the power of presence becomes personal, all right? How the power of presence becomes personal. Now, for the next 15, 16 minutes or so, I'm going to speak to the issues that have dominated the global conversation for the last several weeks. Things like fear and disease and the abuse of power and prejudice and institutionalized silencing of the truth in order to maintain control. I'm going to speak to these things directly, but I will speak to these issues by reading a story out of the Bible. So you're going to have to connect the dots, okay? I want to invite you to hear the Word of God read from from the Bible, and then I want to invite you to hear the Word of God Against the backdrop of our cultural crises, okay, that we're all right in the middle of. All right, according to the historic Christian calendar, today is the Feast of the Trinity. It is the celebration of the Trinity. And at first glance, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At first, that can feel academic. It can sound kind of esoteric. But in the end, the doctrine of the Trinity is known personally, with power, and sometimes with persecution. Most conversations about the Trinity focus on trying to understand it. How is God one God in three persons? But the emphasis in the Bible is never on understanding the Trinity. The emphasis in the Bible is on experiencing the Trinity. So let's look at a story together. This is Acts chapter 3. It'll be on the screens. I hope you'll open your Bible. I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning. This is the first story of the Christians after they are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, in which Peter and John, in this story, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they're going to reveal the new normal for the Christian church. They're going to demonstrate the new normal, the post-Pentecost normal For the Christian church. What is that post Pentecost normal? It is life in union with the Trinity. It is living your life for the glory of God in the name of Jesus, or we might say in the way of Jesus, or in the style of Jesus, or representing Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Living life in unity with the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, the name of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read way more scripture than I usually do. I'm going to comment as I go along. Then I'm going to make two simple observations and ask one question. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Okay, did, did you notice that? At the time of prayer. That's, that's what is, is written here. So Peter and John are participating in a regular, structured time of prayer. They're practicing their Jewish faith. If this story were about us, it might start with one Sunday, Linda and Tony were driving to church to catch the 9 o'clock worship gathering. 
I mean, it's just what they do. It's super important, but it is not unusual. This is normal life for them, normal life for Peter and John. Verse 2, now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple, to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. So now the story about Peter and John their normal daily routine, it expands to in include a specific individual, someone else. We don't get his name. He's simply called the man who was lame from birth. Okay, so his whole life, think about this for a second, at no fault of his own, um, he has been profoundly disadvantaged, um, ultimately because of brokenness. Acts chapter 2 is a story about a crowd. Acts chapter 3, what we're reading right now, the story is going to get really personal. It's going to get profoundly personal. Verse 3, when he, that is the man who was born lame, uh, has been lame since birth, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. This is so fascinating to me, because Peter and John would have likely seen this guy before. Furthermore, there's beggars probably all around the gate called Beautiful because this was a place that you could expect to get some alms or some, some charity as you enter in for worship. Peter sees something, though. Something's different this time. It's like he knows something. The, the, our, our translations say Peter looks straight at him. What does that mean? Is he curious? Is he annoyed? Is he alarmed? Is he confused? Is Peter potentially seeing the, the man for the first time? Is he seeing the person, not just the, a beggar, but the person maybe for the first time? The original language, in the original language, the phrase here combines two words. It combines the word alpha, like primary, like alpha dog, and it includes the word that means stretch, so looked straight at him, could be rendered, gazed with strained intent. He's stretching his eyes. He's looking right at this guy, right? He fastens his eyes. There's intensity in this moment. Peter seems to be seeing something more than a crippled man. Peter seems to be sensing spiritual guidance, not some audible physical voice that he heard from Jesus while they were traveling around, but spiritually Peter seems to be sensing something from the Holy Spirit, which now lives in Peter because he was filled with the Holy Spirit a couple days ago at Pentecost, right? Peter is apparently sensing that God wants to heal this man. He sees this man. And he senses that God wants to heal this man. Verse 6. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. It sounds like a very familiar phrase to us. But imagine how strange this would have sounded the first time Peter says this. Like, um, I don't have any money. Don't carry cash. Right? But... I'm a follower of this man, Jesus. He's from Nazareth. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, by his authority, walk. Then taking him by the right hand and helping him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk. 
Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here's this story about Peter and John living life in union with the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're working for the glory of God. They're working in the name of Jesus. And they are doing work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Look at verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. They came running to him in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? See how clear Peter is on this point? He knows it's not his own power that has, made this, that has healed this man. Then Peter goes off, and he goes off for the rest of chapter 3, and he's calling his, his Jewish brothers and sisters, people like him, he's calling them to repentance. That's the theme of what he says next. Let me just read a part of it. Verse 13. The God of, this is Peter. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Oh, now he unleashes. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, which is a quote from Daniel 7, referring to the Son of God. You disowned the Son of God, the holy and righteous one, Peter says. And ask that a murderer be released to you. Verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man, whom you see and know was made strong. In Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him, it is, he has been completely healed, as you can see. And then he just continues. Look down at the top of chapter 4. The beginning of chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the, the Sadducees came up to Peter. Three different authorities came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. About 50 days ago, it's Easter, there's about 100 followers of Jesus. 50 days later, it's Pentecost, 3,000 followers of Jesus. A few days later, 5,000 men, just the men, 5,000 followers of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 5. The next day... The rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas and John and Alexandra and others of the high priest's family. Friends, the reason this detail is so significant, do you know why? It's because these are the same dudes who oversaw the rigged trial of Jesus just a month and a half ago, right? It is not a stretch to say these are the men who killed Jesus. These are the same leaders whose personal prejudices blinded them to Jesus' innocence just a month and a half ago. And now, less than two months later, Peter and John spend the night in a Roman jail and the next morning they're brought before these guys. This is starting to look a lot like Jesus' issue, Jesus' story, Jesus' experience. Verse 7, 
They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. <laughs> then he says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Okay, this is not the Peter we saw a couple weeks ago, is it? Right, this man is on fire. This is a new normal. Peter is living in union with the Trinity. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He is ministering in the name of the resurrected Son of God, Jesus, and he is working for the glory of God. Verse 13, this is the last section I'll read. Finish out the chapter. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. That's like their court. And they referred, they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. And then they called him in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, which is the way these Jewish leaders would teach. So they're flipping it. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. Yeah, for us, Peter says, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. All right. In these chapters and in the next few, Luke is going to show how the leadership of the people of God gets transferred from the Jewish priesthood to these 12 fishermen, these followers of Jesus, the apostles, right? These unschooled ordinary men. And that's going to be a fun journey to see. There are two points I want to highlight from this story quickly. The first is this. Do you see how the reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is known by Peter and John personally. Do you see that? It's personal. Do you see how the reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is known by the lame man personally? He is healed by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. Does he intellectually understand the Trinity? No. Could he explain the nature of God in a way that would be accepted as orthodox Christian theology? Almost certainly not. But that's not the point. It's never been the point. What is the point? 
life in union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which transforms not just a philosophical system, not just a cultural perspective, but transforms individuals like you and like me from broken and begging to whole and worshiping. So first point is this. The power of God is personal. It affects us personally, and it affects those around us personally. And here's the second point. Because the power of God is experienced personally, there's a personal cost. The power of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is at work through the person Peter, and it's amazing, and everyone's gathering in wonder and awe, and while the no longer lame guy is jumping up and down, the authorities roll in, right? Religious authorities, guards, and the highly educated culturally elite, the Sadducees, and they point at Peter and John, and now for them there's a cost right away, and the cost is personal. The new normal, the post-Pentecost normal for the Christian community is union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a taste of heaven here and now. It's living life in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is a world-changing power. It is a restorative power. It is power of the kingdom of God. The church now carries the very presence of God into the world, affecting broken cultures, restoring unjust systems, and changing lives personally. And there's a cost. And the cost is personal too. Ultimately, the cost is always personal. Friends, we were made to live life in union with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the way of life. And when we live this life, when we walk as Jesus walked, when we welcome the filling of the Holy Spirit of God, there will be a cost. And it may be severe. And it certainly will be personal. For Peter and John in this story, a quick prayer service turns into a night in jail. This act of kindness is perceived as a threat by the strongest authorities in their their world. So here's the question. What will life lived in the power of the presence of God cost you? What will life lived in God's presence cost you as you personally represent Jesus in your context, as you live in the name of Jesus for the glory of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit? What might that cost you? We see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church that when the power of God is known personally, when it makes an impact personally, there is always a cost, and that cost is also personal. It might be a physical cost. It might be a financial cost. It might be a social or relational cost. It might be a professional cost. This might hit your reputation. People might not think of you the same way after this. It might impact the well-ordered pace of your life. It might impact the well-curated peace of your house. The tension exists here friends, because we don't want the personal cost. We want the personal power. 
We're tired of a spirituality that doesn't make a difference in the world. We're tired of an impotent church. We want a power that will change lives, change the culture, change the world. We don't necessarily want the personal cost. And so there's tension. So may God give us the courage to fully surrender to living in union with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that through our lives, whether through personal power or personal cost, God is glorified and all things are restored. Amen? Amen.